Welcome to Influential She, the podcast about accelerating the influence of women in the world. You will find us to be a fresh voice in an old conversation. And here we are, your amazing co-hosts, Deb Sohol and Mel Shop. Well, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Influential She. We're so thrilled that you can join us today and this great conversation we're going to have with our podcast guest today. I'm Mel Shop, your co-host. And I'm Deb Soholt, and we're just so excited with our guest today. I mean, it's unbelievable. We're going to be talking about our high-leverage practice of voice. And I think, you know, Mel, you and I have talked about how voice, sometimes it's not about the louder voice that really starts to have the influence. It's about the voice that has meaning and impact and intentionality behind it. And so you always talk about raising your words and not just your voice. And I, I think that that's probably even more important today in, in our current society and the way that we sometimes interact with people, that we feel that whoever is the loudest is going to be the one that gets recognized. But oftentimes, it's the words that we say, and I you know words matter, um, but also how we use those words to imp- influence not just the current situation, but really what's happening um, in the future and as far as what we do in everyday life as well. Oh, so true. And our guest today, Susan Young, I'm telling you, this is a woman who needed to start bringing voice to something that she could have never even imagined and something that everybody would be reticent to even start to get involved in. And yet she had the courage, and this is really about a courage story, to bring voice to the unimaginable within a family unit. And so the she in 2017 actually was the founder and CEO of a parent coalition. Now it's to end human trafficking. Now, how do you end up with a place where you have to start a coalition to end human trafficking and experience it? And she is someone that has really brought voice to multiple systems, the judicial system, the healthcare system, the education system, in many ways, the law enforcement system, and brought voice to an issue that it doesn't make you popular at a cocktail party. So I want to welcome to the show, Susan Young. We're so glad that you're here. Thank you, Melody and Deb. Thank you so much for having me here today. So let's begin with, I mean, the story of what happened that really brought you into this space of being a powerhouse around this issue of human trafficking was from an experience with your family. So I think we have to start kind of at the beginning, Susan, and share with our listeners, how in the world did you end up in this work? What precipitated this? What precipitated uh, the start of our organization is, like you said in the beginning, bringing a voice. Um, our our voice, my daughter's voice, our family's voice um, was tried to be snuffed out by human traffickers and, and the situation that our family endured. And I wanted to give a voice to our family, to our daughter and to our children. And more importantly, so mine can be heard so that I can save other families and uh, other parents from go- uh, having to ever know the agony that our family did. Our, our family story and situation started um, 10 years ago. On a sunny August afternoon, our, our eldest daughter had um, just celebrated her 15th birthday. Um, and, and I should probably start before that. You know, we were the, the typical everyday American family. My, my husband and I worked, uh, we started our own business. Um, we had four amazing children, two girls, two boys, 
You know, we, we lived the quintessential American life. Our, our kids went to good schools. We were involved in, in church communities and youth groups, soccer groups, um, gymnastic leagues, you name it. We were the typical American active family living the life and the dream. Um, and we were working hard for our children to give them a better life, to give them a good start in life, and just, you know, moving forward with our dream. My husband and I, we've been married almost 23 years. Um, so we're a very strong family unit. But what started the downfall of our family and the tragedy that befell our family um, was 10 years ago, our eldest daughter had, um, she had just celebrated her 15th birthday the week before. She was getting ready to start her freshman year of high school. And um, she had decided to go to a, the movie theater with a group of girlfriends, which is very innocent for young girls to do. To celebrate these two milestones in her life, she went with a group of girls. Uh, at the movie theater, she met a young boy who was similar in age, just a year older than her. They talked for a few minutes. He seemed harmless enough. So they exchanged cell phone information and Facebook information. And that was really, at that time, the end of their interaction. He did contact her through Facebook and thus began their online friendship. And again, my daughter will say she did feel comfortable. There was no red flags with the boy. He was well-intentioned, well-mannered, well-groomed. It gave no indication of who and what he was. Um, and it turned out that rather than a sweet, innocent, young boy, he was in fact an MS-13 gang member and trafficker. And his job was to meet young girls and recruit them and lure them into the dark world of human trafficking. And he did this simply by just befriending them at movie theaters, shopping centers, uh, wherever he could have access to young, young girls, and let's be honest, young boys as well. So this began their online friendship. And I had only had interaction with him uh, via, you know, text message or cell phone or, you know, FaceTime at that time. I had never met this individual, um, but I had had conversations with him. I did get to the point where he would come to our house and have dinner and we, we did get to know him and he did seem like a nice individual. Thus began their dating relationship that my husband and I did did not approve of, and we did not want her to focus on that. But, you know, children will be children, and they're going to fight that. Um, the only good thing at the time that we thought was he lived in another state, about 30, 40 miles away. So we figured with some separation, that might be safe. Unfortunately, this individual as our daughter was starting high school, introduced her to MS-13 gang affiliates at her high school. And that's where the real interaction came in. These affiliates initially befriending her. Um, occasionally, as we all know, that young children have vulnerabilities and self-esteem problems. Um, and they really... Uh, use that against our daughter. They really took the time to groom her, to figure out what her vulnerabilities were. And then they tried to uplift her and gain her trust through those. Um, once they were able to do that, they kind of made their true intentions known. 
that they were not there to be her friend. They didn't want to be her friend. They wanted to use her and they wanted to traffic her. Um, as soon as she realized that this new friendship um, was not going in the direction that she wanted to, um, she reached out to her school's counselor resource officer. It was documented and we have it documented 22 times for help. Um, and the school's counselor and resource officer did not get back to her to check on her even once. She did not feel safe talking to my husband and I, as most kids don't, because she didn't want to get in trouble or shame or feel like we were going to judge her for any reason. Once the gang had gotten word that she was trying to break free from their relationship, that's when they started to retaliate against her. And they knew that they had to trap her some way to keep her compliant. Um, and that's when they took her to a secluded part of the school's property. Um, and there was five to six individuals and they gang raped her one by one and they videotaped the assault so that if she ever did try to tell my husband and I or the police or anyone at the school, then they would release that videotape either to social media or to the family. And our daughter will tell you when that happened that day, a piece of her died, which very much opened the door to shame and self-hate. And that began her downward spiral of, of out of control and, and hating herself and um, not trusting anyone. Um, and she just closed off who she was as a person. I don't care if you're a mother. I don't care if you're who you are right now at this point. Um, your story has just, you know, you are able to articulate this so clearly and calmly. And yet you can't tell me that this hasn't had, I mean, you talk to her lens and her, her voice, but tell me about your voice and tell me about you because the story is not just about your daughter. The story mm -hmm. is about you and how it impacted your family. And I know you, you're, you need to tell more of that, but I just, at this point, I just want to bring that out because it's such an important piece to understand how you managed and held this. So this, the whole situation affected uh, me personally in, in many different ways. One being that I'm, I'm a woman, right? Knowing what my daughter suffered, you know, as a woman being assaulted is one of the worst things that we could ever go through. Uh, knowing that my, my own daughter at such a young age had to endure that and endure, endure it multiple times, um, that, that killed me as a mother inside, um, because I couldn't protect her from that. I couldn't save her from knowing that pain. Um, and I couldn't prevent it from happening. Um, and, and that was a, a big hole that, that ate away inside of me for the, the longest time. And if I'm truly honest, kind of created a dark space within my heart. Um, because it's, it just creates an, an anger and a, a level of, I don't want to use the word hate, but because hate is such a strong word, but a darkness inside of a person that you really have to um, push away. And that's why I've kind of thrown myself into this advocacy role to, to help one another, to alleviate that pain that I feel 
within myself. Um, as a mother, I felt like I failed my child. I, I failed my other children. Um, I couldn't protect them. I couldn't save them. Um, and that was a very long, dark period for me to endure and to go through. Um, but it is through this advocacy and sharing this story. And, and I will be completely honest with you. It is not easy at all to share this story. And, um, and usually I have to tell it by uh, a notebook type thing, because as I, as I talk through it and I go through it, um, I still have flashbacks um, of that. And I still suffer from PTSD because of the, the situation that we went through as a family. Um, so as I'm talking to you, I, I try to remain so calm and in control, but inside my head is flashbacks and, and different things that I'm fighting to, to not show you. Um, but it has been very traumatic for me uh, as well. So Susan, talk a little bit. I think our listeners would be curious about, you know, how did you not know like this was happening? I mean, you said there was behavioral downward spiral, but I think people would go, how did you not know what was going on here? Because it's very subtle and very controlling. And yes. wasn't there a lot of threats to her about killing your family? And not only the social media shaming of the videotaping, mm -hmm. but talk a little bit about what you saw and and how you got to a point where you're like, oh my goodness, you know, it's like in plain sight. Yes. And so this had eluded my husband and I for many months because all we saw was our 15-year-old daughter kind of spiraling out of control. Um, the gang had to make sure that she gave no indication to us um, that anything bad was happening behind the scenes. If she did, they were threatening retaliation against her siblings, my husband and I. They were threatening to kill the family. So Courtney had really had to pretend and put on this facade that nothing was happening to her. Although we as her parents who knew and loved her the most could tell that she was struggling deep inside. Um, but she gave, she gave no indication as to what she was really enduring behind the scenes. Um, our only indication that something was terribly wrong was our three-year-old daughter. She would constantly point to her bedroom window and say, bad man, bad man is coming to get me. Um, being only three at the time, um, we thought maybe she was having nightmares or bad dreams. Um, we had never seen a bad man at the window, so um, we had no context from that. And being only three, she couldn't articulate what that was. Um, and none of the other kids would give us any under any other information because they were behind the scenes getting threatened and tortured by gang members. Um, so the situation really came to head one early February morning. I had received a call at 3.30 in the morning from the boy our daughter befriended over the summer. And his words were, Mrs. Young, you have to find Courtney and you have to get her someplace safe quick. And my reply to him was, what are you talking about? She's sleepy. She's upstairs sleeping. And he said, no, she's not. She's at a party. She's drunk and she's high and she needs your help. I, uh, of course, immediately ran upstairs. Courtney was not in her room. Um, 
I called him for additional information. He would not get, he did not have any additional information except for the information that he had given me. I immediately started to call her cell phone. I tried to track her cell phone. The gang had turned off the tracking feature. Um, and I couldn't get, I couldn't find her. I immediately called her friends. No one had seen her. Um, and that's when I reached out to our local police department, um, to file a missing and endangered person. Um, the police came early that morning and apparently unbeknownst to us, the police had been watching the situation for quite some time. They knew the activities of what the gang had been doing. They had been following Courtney's case and, and her activities again. And, and no one bothered to reach out to us as, as a parent, right. You know, which was very unsettling and, and heartbreaking. I, I just need to ask you about that because um, what was the justification? I mean, I think everybody's going to want to know, uh, you know, they are parents as well. Many of the law enforcement, they've got to know. So, I, I mean, I, I'm sure this is part of the piece you advocate for and the work that you do, but can you explain like, what was the, what was the wall of not letting you into that, into that knowledge? I wish I could answer that. They never gave me a direct answer to that question, only that to them, they were investigating for a possible, um, uh, to try to apprehend the traffickers. Um, so they didn't want to give any indication that they were following the traffickers or Courtney or to give them a heads up so that they would, um, either run or they couldn't make an, a final arrest. Um, but they gave me no reason as to why they never reached out to me directly as a parent. How long was she missing then, Susan? When did you find her? Uh, the first time she went missing, she was gone for four days. Um, I had received a call from one of her new friends who, who was in the gang. Um, she indicated to me that she thought that we, the parents, didn't want Courtney anymore and that we didn't care about her because that's what the gang was telling Courtney. Um, and I said, no, I, I love my daughter. I want my daughter back. Please tell me where she is. Um, even to her safety, she gave me the location of where Courtney was being held. I drove to the address and um, I immediately called the police and I said, this is where I am. Um, this is where they said Courtney is. I need you to come at, come and get her. Um, and I did that just to make sure the police would take me seriously at that point, that if, if they weren't coming, I was going to go in. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. And I knew they didn't want that. So about 20 minutes later, uh, an officer came. I was immediately ordered to go to the police station and wait while they brought Courtney in for questioning, I later learned that the police officer had found Courtney locked in a closet. Now, the police officer assumed that she was, quote unquote, hiding from the officer, which was not the case. The gang was hiding her. And this kind of goes back to why I am an advocate, because I don't blame the police officer. It's a lack of knowledge and training that they don't understand. Um, and so I go to train these entities now to, to look for these signs, to look for these, these warnings. Um, it, it wasn't that Courtney was trying to evade the police and trying to stay in the situation. 
um, the trafficker threw her in the closet, locked her there and said, you need to stay there or we're going to kill you and be quiet. And so that's what she did, even though she wanted to be rescued. Susan, Susan, so like when you think about sex trafficking, and I think um, a lot of folks have this filter, they think, well, somebody's abducted and then they're taken somewhere versus having it be something that's just going on in everyday life. Like wasn't mm-hmm. Courtney's situation after school that there yes. was this period of time after school and maybe on some weekends. So it could happen while your family's just living a life. The the average statistic um, from the Department of Justice and from Nick Mick is that 60% of children are trafficked at home before they most of them aren't even, in fact, taken. I know a lot of parents see the scenario as white van, someone comes and picks up your child at the park and they are trafficked. That is usually not how trafficking works. Um, Courtney's trafficking began right after she was assaulted on school property. Um, and she was taken every day after school. Um, she would tell my husband and I she was staying after school for a homework assistance or a, a yoga club that she was attending. Um, and I, as my a parent, did my due diligence and I asked the school, are these clubs real? And yes, they were. Um, but she was being taken to a nearby house every day where eight to 10 gentlemen were waiting um, and she could not leave until she was finished. And so she was trafficked every day after school. Um, the weekends, a, a lot of times um, she would sneak out at night. They would come by and threaten her to, to come. If she didn't come, they were going to hurt her sister. Um, and they would take her to nearby houses where parties were going on, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday nights, and she would have to stay there the entire night. And she was coming home at five, five, five thirty in the morning. Um, and they were trafficking her basically seven days a week, um, unbeknownst to my husband and I. So Susan, you talk about, you know, she was taken a first time. Yes. And you recovered her. Yes. Now you're like, oh my goodness, we're, uh, we're in a space of something that we, we got to get remove her from this situation. So didn't you make a decision that you were going to even send her to a whole new school? And then that led to another abduction where you finally were able to start to get her out of this? Yes, we were going to send her to a, a private school um, far away to kind of remove her from the situation. At During that process, we were also trying to get her counseling and and therapy. We had an idea of what had happened to Courtney, but again, she would not divulge any information as to what happened to her um, because she was afraid um, the gang was going to hurt one of us if she did. Um, and she was fearful of that because the gang, unbeknownst to us at the time, they were watching our house. We had a 24-hour surveillance all the time. They knew when we would leave our house, when we would come home, the average length of time. They knew our shopping patterns. They knew our day-to-day activity. And so there was a constant presence at the house. And Courtney knew this. So it it wasn't easy for her to just divulge this information and feel safe. Um, She needed to be able to be in a safe place in order to really give us the information we were trying to give that to her, but 
again, not having all of the information, we didn't know what she needed. Um, we sent her to a couple of therapists and she did open up to these therapists and they accused her of lying and not telling the truth. And, you know, one doctor said, this, this is not a real situation. This doesn't happen. You know, you're just making this up for attention, which made Courtney fall deeper into depression that, you know, like the gang says, no one's really going to believe you. No one's going to listen to you. And, that hurt her. And again, I don't blame the counselor. It's a lack of knowledge and understanding of the situation. Um, so after that, we were getting ready to pull her out into another school the day before she was going to leave, uh, for this school, uh, the gang came by, um, and it happened to be on mother's day. Um, and they came and they took her a second time at gunpoint and said, if you do not come with us, we will shoot your little sister in her crib. And, you know, Courtney being 15 and simply wanting to protect and save her sister, she complied, even though she knew what was going to happen to her. Um, after they took her, she was gone for right at uh, 14 to 15 days. Um, and she was recovered. Um, by a gang officer a, a, who was knew a lot about trafficking. And he happened to be the only officer in the county trained in human trafficking. Um, he got wind of the situation that we were going through and that Courtney was going through. Um, he was able to kind of intercept and figure out what was going on. The gang knew that we were looking for Courtney um, and they, they knew she could not stay in the area. So they were getting ready to sell her to an out of state gang in New York, um, for $2,000. Um, fortunately this, this detective was able to intercept that transaction and was able to recover Courtney, but had he not done that, um, we most likely would have never seen Courtney again. The average statistic for any victim in, in trafficking to be recovered is 1%. You, I mean, it's not just the two weeks of hell. And it's not just the year of hell. But this was and is, obviously, um, you know, you, I, I, and you can tell how painful it is and how difficult it is. It's difficult for us to, I, as an empathy, I know it's not our own because we're not dealing with this. But you talked a lot about how, you know, it's not like you get her back and then you put everything back together. It's not like Humpty Dumpty, you know. Um, I, a number of really uh, things that I think really resonated and have stuck with me through the time in which we uh, talked about this is the impact on not just you and your husband, but your other children. Because there was a family that still had to recover and and how you did that is really a, a powerful story about what you knew you had to do for yourself, but how you needed them to recover in a much different way than what we might anticipate. Can you share that? Well, once we were able to get Courtney in a safe uh, and secure facility where we knew she was safe, um, we could finally start to turn our sights and attention on our other children. Um and that allowed us to see the full impact that the situation had on them. And 
once they were in a position to feel safe and secure, um, they started to divulge what had happened to them. Um, they all had been um, abused and hurt and tortured in the worst ways you can imagine. Um, even our youngest three-year-old daughter, um, she was a, vi- a victim to the gang's malicious behavior. They left no family member untouched by this horrendous activity. My husband and I, as you were said earlier, we, we sat here and we tried to take in the situation and we, you know, we kept asking ourselves over and over and over again, how do you put four little souls back together again? How do you do it? It, it seemed like an insurmountable task. Like we could never, never be able to do that. And we, we thought for the longest time, our family was just destroyed. And for the longest time it, it was, um, the, the hopes and the dreams that we had for our children were shattered. Um, you know, the innocence of their youth was robbed and, and taken away from them. Um, you know, the hopes and dreams as parents that you have when you, you hold your newborn baby, you know, someone takes that from you. And what is left is a child that is completely changed and different from what you remember. And then you have to regroup and refocus those dreams and figure out what they need in order to recover and to move on. And what we had to do very early on is we had to understand that each child went through their own traumatic experience, and we had to treat each child differently. There was not a one-size-fits-all approach to this. We had to take it one child at a time, we had to break down their trauma, their fears, what they were struggling through, and figure out what was the best way to help them. For instance, my, my youngest son, he, he wanted separation from the family to gain situational awareness because he needed to, to break away, not because he didn't love us, but because he wanted that inner peace that he couldn't get at home. And my husband and I didn't take offense to that because that was something at the time we couldn't give him because we were enduring the other children. So he himself enrolled in a military school for a year to gain that situational awareness and perspective to ground himself and to also separate himself from the pain and the trauma a little bit. And he was able to learn certain coping mechanisms through that to help him move on with his life. Our other son kind of turned down a, a darker path and, and self-medicated for a little bit because he he had suffered more trauma. And as you know, for, for guys, talking about trauma is not something they do. Um, and so he self-medicated for a year or two, but then quickly realized, that's not what I need to do. I need to get back on track and I need to move forward with my life. And after several years of, of counseling and, and therapy, he is a, a sophomore in college and, and doing well. So we had to take it step by step, one by one. Our, our youngest daughter was probably the hardest because she was the youngest when it happened. And a lot of parents think that, oh, since it happened at a young age, she's not going to remember. Well, no, they, they very much remember, but it also shapes 
the fundamentals and, and the groundwork that a parent's lay in a young child's life. And that had a huge negative impact on her, um, her view of relationships, her view of overall safety, um, and kind of how she viewed the world. And up until about four months ago, and, and she's almost 14, she slept in our room every single night for fear that the bad man might one day return to get for her. But we're slowly, you know, and, and most people are like, we'll just have her sleep in her room. She'll be fine. It, it, it was so ingrained, that fear in her body. I couldn't do that to her. And I had a lot of therapists tell me, you have to just force her to sleep in her room. And I said, if this is the one piece of safety that I can provide for her, that I'm going to give it to her as long as she needs it. She's now at a place where she is, you know, sleeping in her room by herself every night, but we were able to give her that stability, but it's, it will be a lifetime of healing and growing for all of our children, in, including Courtney. So it, it is not something that is an easy, easy fix. It's tiring. It's, it's soul wrenching and draining. We have had to restructure our whole family. And when I say it's it's a living death as as a as a parent, as a parent, one of the worst things you can ever go through is the death of a child or the assault of a child. Which, you know, part of this experience was both because we we lost our children as who they were as individuals, their innocence, but yet they had to keep going as completely different people, and we had to mourn that as as husband and wife. And it's, it's a very difficult process. So Susan, talk a little bit about like you and like your husband. I mean, here you're in this role of parent and the responsibility to lift up the lives of your children. And we're, of course, we're putting our kids first, but how, I mean, cause I think about a husband, you know, most men would be, I, I want to go just take out all these people. I mean, this is what they did to my daughter is just you know, unconscionable and, uh, and wanting and needing action. Um, so talk a little bit about the two of you and you. So I, right away when this situation happened, especially to Courtney, um, my husband and I both noticed, um, we were starting to play what I call the blame game. Well, if, if you had parent differently, or if you had, you know, done this differently, or if you had intervened differently, or maybe if you hadn't said this this way. Uh, so we really started to play that blame game. And we, we both knew that that was leading down a dark road, because um, that often will lead to, you know, separation or divorce. And we knew if that happened, our family would never recover. So we immediately stopped the blame game and said, we're not going to do that. Um, we're going to focus on the children. We're going to focus on their recovery. Um, we can get through anything as long as our children are okay. So we focused all of our energy in healing our children. Um, we learned as our children were healing that we as parents were healing, um, but that took some time too. Um, we went through uh, individual therapy uh, within ourselves. We went to group therapy, my husband and I, um, to understand the trauma that the secondhand trauma that we were going through as a result of what our children had suffered. Um, and once we had a better understanding of, of that, 
it gave us the clarity to, to move forward and to help our children. Um, but it, it does take a toll on the family and on parents. Um, and the outside factor to that is in addition to the, the parents playing the blame game, oftentimes in these types of situations, because I help other families um, going through a similar situation, you have outside factors of, you know, grandparents and aunts and uncles and people like that who want to blame you. Well, if you were a better parent, maybe this wouldn't have happened. And, you know, that isn't constructive either. Um, it's, you have to t- turn as my husband and I call that noise off. And we gave all of our family members education and literature and things, um, how to educate themselves on the situation. And we told them all that, you know, blaming us, you know, trust me, we, we already feel guilty enough. We, we don't need additional blame. Um, but to really educate themselves because what they were doing wasn't going to help us and it wasn't going to help our family. Um, and we had to set up boundaries saying, if, if, if you're not on board with this and you can't educate yourself, then until you're willing, we need to put up a boundary and and you need to stay on this side of the fence because we need to work on ourselves and our family. And we had to do that a couple of times to some family members um, but eventually they did educate themselves. They did go to therapy themselves, trauma therapy, um, and really started to understand the situation and, and what we were going through. I think before we talk about your advocacy work, I think everybody's going to want to know, how is Courtney? Oh, Courtney is almost 26. Um, after she was in inpatient, she went through about four and a half years of inpatient residential therapy to overcome the trauma that she endure, endured of that year, year and a half of trafficking. Um, Courtney, life will always be a struggle for Courtney. She will always be struggling to regain a sense of normalcy and fighting for that normalcy in her life. She will have a lifetime of, of PTSD and triggers. Um, but what I love about Courtney is she is so committed to her recovery and living her best life and moving forward. Um, she is still in therapy. She is moving forward. She is going to uh, college. She has to do things at a slower pace than, than most people because of the trauma and the PTSD. So she is currently going to school to become a, um, a veterinarian. Uh, she loves animals, and they are very healing for her. But life has changed for Courtney. But she is committed to living her best life, and because she is, she will. And I always say that Courtney is my hero. And if she can you know, endure what she did and still continue to put a smile on her face every day, and, and love life, so can I. So you have now taken this and you have become um, a voice. You know, there'd be a lot of ways to do this. And I, oh, goodness, Susan, I think about this and I don't know. I mean, none of us know how we would be. It would be easy to just, there's got to be emotions. I just can't imagine from anger to to guilt, to all these things that nobody nobody knows how to wrap into a ball. But what you did that I so admire 
And I think both Deborah and I admire is that you took it then and you did something proactive with it by yes. doing advocacy. I think your work is really important to talk to our listeners about. So there's there's a story that I share oftentimes. Um, while Courtney was in residential, I got to meet numerous um, other victims as well. And I, at that time, I had started to speak out a little bit about what our had, family had gone through. Um, and they would they would call me mom, and they would say, "Mom, you know our our trafficker took our voice away, and we don't have it yet, um, and we're not ready to to have our voice yet. But one day we will. But until then, would you be our voice?" And that hit me so hard within my soul that they were entrusting me with their stories and their voice and their pain um, to share that to the world and, and to every parent and anyone willing to listen. Um, so for me, I, I took that as, as a call to action. And back in 2017, I created the, the Parent Coalition to End Human Trafficking. And I, it started as a support group at the time for other parents whose child was trafficked um, because throughout our um, situation, I was able to identify gaps, both in the legal, the judicial uh, law enforcement, um, doctors, hospitals. I was able to identify all those gaps and needs and services for parents. How had the system failed them? And I also provided a support group for them so they could begin their journey of healing. Um, when the pandemic hit, of course, that forced everything to um, go online, and it's it's changed the parent coalition a little bit because of that in our in our mission. It, it and it's actually in a good way. I've started a online, I call it a helpline. So if a parent has any type of questions, or if they feel that their child may be being groomed or approached, or even if they just have additional questions about trafficking, that they don't feel comfortable reaching out to someone else, they just want another parent. I will send them resources, information, and if it turns out that their child is in a possible grooming situation, we reach out, we help them, and we connect them with the proper resources to help their child. I have also created a curriculum for an educational curriculum for parents to identify a possible trafficking situation, how they should talk to their children about trafficking, and ways that they can educate their children about a trafficking. I've created a support group for survivor families. I've created an education group. I've created a helpline for parents and other individuals who need help and services so I really want to give back to the community. I also go into communities. I, I do community awareness sessions. I educate law enforcement. And I'm also starting to lobby to change the laws for victims and for families. Right now, the law is set that they just see the victim as the victim of a trafficking situation. I'm fighting to see the family and siblings considered to be victims as well, because they are very much affected by the trafficking situation. I'm also fighting uh, one of the laws is, you know, once a child turns the age of 18, it's considered consent. 
and there's little resources or recourse for you know law enforcement to to save these victims. You know, just because a, a child turns 18 doesn't make them any less a victim than they were when they were 17. So I want the laws to reflect that as well. So I'm fighting this on on many fronts. We're we're making headway and also trying to support parents and and families as well. Okay, so Susan, you know, you've taken this horrible situation and really are turning it around for some good. And you felt compelled to do this and these other victims that you met talking about, can you be our voice because we're not strong enough to do that? But it could have been super easy to just say, whoa, I don't want my whole life wrapped up in this now, like to be in this constant horrific event. So tell our listeners just from you, like not from, now you're working on policy and you're doing education and you're, you know, bringing support together. You're helping people with languaging. You're really, you know, trying to right some injustices around this issue, which is incredible influence. But let's just talk about Susan just for a moment before we have to close. And what what gets you dug deep? I mean, like, how do you how do you hold you together to make all of this happen? Oh, that's a good question. Um, my my faith is what holds me together each and every day, and the ability to know. You know, it, it is not easy to share our family's testimony and story. But to know that I can help one child, one family, um, not go through the horrific situation. And, and I had that happen to me about three years ago. Um, I had given a community presentation and a grandmother had attended. And she went home and she talked to her granddaughter, her 15-year-old granddaughter, about the information that she had heard at the meeting. The granddaughter confided in her after learning what, in fact, human trafficking was and how it, it how it presented itself. She confided in her grandmother and said, I think I'm being groomed. And so the grandmother reached out to our organization and the partner organization that I work with, Anti-Trafficking International. And um we did our, our due diligence and we started to investigate the situation. And it turns out, in fact, yes, this young 15-year-old girl was being groomed by local traffickers in her area. And fortunately, um, just by attending this one seminar and learning this little bit of information, this young girl was never trafficked. We were able to rescue her and pull her out of this situation. We were able to prosecute the traffickers and give them jail time. And this young 15-year-old girl never had to become a victim. And the next community meeting, I was able to meet this 15-year-old girl. And she came up and she hugged me and we both cried. And, you know, honestly, that is why I do what I do, because I saved you know, help save that that young girl suffering what Courtney did. And I will continue to do that for as as long as I have breath in my body. That's powerful. Thank you. Um, Yeah, that's really powerful. Incredible story. Thank you. So Susan, would you be able to just provide us some, some advice to all those who are listening out there? What can we do to make sure that we are being aware? What are, what are things that we can do to support and help? 
I urge people to go to preventht.org um, to learn the indicators and uh, signs of trafficking. Um, as a parent, if you have any type of red flags or reservations, I urge you to never ignore those. Uh, one of the things Courtney would often say to me is, trust me, mom, everything's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did, and I will never trust those words again. So as a parent, if you have any type of reservation or red flags, always trust your gut. Um, learn the indicators and the warning signs of trafficking. If your child is starting to withdraw, you know, some of these can be normal, typical teenage, you know, growing pains. Um, but if something is telling you deep down inside, there's something not right with my child, you need to explore that further. If you notice that they possibly have any extra phones or electronic devices or cash or expensive items, um, you know, those are all kind of warning signs that something is going on. Um, and as a parent, you should dive into that. But I really implore you to go onto that website. We have lots of valuable information uh, for the readers and listeners to, to gather um, and really to educate. Because I, I tell parents all the time, if I had 10% of the knowledge that I do now, I would have been able to save Courtney and I would have been able to save our family. So even if it's just that little bit of information, it can make a world of difference in this type of situation. Well, Susan, thank you just so much for being on Influential She and sharing your incredible story, which is, I know, hard to talk about every single time that you have to do it. And yet you've been able to show how the worst of tragedy, I mean, you were just an incredible woman of courage and bringing voice to this issue and turning it around into something positive for others, but also for yourself and your family, and the kind of role model that you are to us, but also to your kids and in your relationship with your husband to say, wow, this is one tough woman that can really go to hell and back and start to figure out how to climb up on the other side and turn something into good. So we just can't thank you enough for bringing voice to this issue of sex trafficking I think it's one of those things it's very easy just to sweep under the rug and to say, oh no, not in not in these family units, not in my block, not on my end of town, and to really raise the voice that this is happening everywhere, in yes. all socioeconomic groups, in all types of people, and that as women, we can really get involved, even if it's not in the full advocacy way, but in understanding, knowing, learning, and helping others to help their families as well. So we just can't thank you enough for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I and to all of our listeners, we just really appreciate you being a part of Influential She and for tuning in as you do. We hope you'll share it with your friends. Today, I want to leave you with, how, where's your voice at? And do you have the courage to start bringing it out in ways that might be controversial, not heard by others, but deep in your heart, you know the risk really matters. So we hope you'll tune in again to Influential She. We're so glad that you did this time. Talk to you again. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed our podcast, we'd be so jazzed if you rate us on whatever app you use to find us. And hey, be sure to tell all your friends about Influential She. And please visit us at InfluentialShe.com. 
and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. And you know what? If you come up with a new one, please let us know. In the meantime, remember, stay influential. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at teachbetter.com slash podcasts, and we'll see you at the next episode.